Now, why do we say love is a garden? Well, after all, the whole love story of the human race began in the garden. Their love was at its peak, and then it went into decline. And then finally, love was reaffirmed again in the garden. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Unadulterated Theology, a podcast about a Christian philosophical perspective on issues related to sex, pornography, and adult entertainment generally. Now, today's episode specifically is going to cover the topic of sexual purity. Uh, However, of course, on this podcast, I always like to draw relevant teachings of the faith that can be cultivated from non-Christian sources. So, some of my favorites of these sources happen to include looking into pagan literature, or Greco-Roman poetry specifically. Now, one example that I'm going to read directly here to you in just a moment comes from um, Ovid's Metamorphoses, or Transformations, if we were to have that translated in English. The title gets its name from the kinds of changes or transformations that take place in the world, in the lives of the gods, and of how they love one another. Now, Ovid opens his poem with an invocation to the gods, which comes from a Latin verb, invocare, meaning to call upon, to uplift his voice to tell of the things that change, new being, but out of old, since you, O gods, created mutable arts and gifts. Give me the voice to tell the shifting story of the world, from its beginning to the present hour, he writes. So Ovid's Metamorphosis was written in the beginning of the first century, particularly in the year um, 8 AD, the same year that the Emperor Augustus actually banished, or more specifically retired, Ovid from the empire entirely, and actually deemed his works as too licentious or corruptive for the Roman youth. And actually, if you read um, his other book, Ars Amatoria, uh, which is Latin for the art of love, uh, it's one of my favorite books probably ever written by uh, the Roman poets, and you'll probably see why the emperor felt this way if you look at kind of the stuff that he talks about, how men should conduct themselves, how to pick up women, stuff like that. So it's pretty funny. But uh, the work itself, the Metamorphosis, that is, functions as a series of poems. It's composed of 15 books, and it sounds like a lot, but I have the Oris Gregory introduction, which is a pretty popular translation. And this copy has about 500 pages. So for containing 15 different books with constant introduction of characters, um, 500 pages really isn't all that much. But anyway, the passage I'm going to read to you concerns the story of Pygmalion, who was a sculptor that lived in Cyprus, Greece a beautiful island that was home to the birth of the goddess Venus, otherwise known as Aphrodite to the Greeks, uh, who was the goddess of beauty and of love. However, Cyprus, to give you some background, at this time, at least according to the poem, was plagued by licentious women who were prostituting themselves and laughed at Venus when her back was turned, as Ovid writes. So this is the stage for um, setting the introduction to Pygmalion, and I'll just read it here uh, word for word as follows, if I can get my book in place. Now, Pygmalion knew these women all too well. Even if he closed his eyes, his instincts told him he'd better sleep alone. He took to art, ingenious as he was, and made a creature more beautiful than any girl on earth, a miracle of ivory and a statue, so charming that it made him fall in love. Her face was life itself. She was a darling, and yet too modest to permit advances, which showed his art had artful touches in it. The kind of art that swept him off his feet. He stroked her arms, her face, her sides, her shoulder. Was she alive or not? He couldn't tell. He kissed her. Did her lips respond to his? 
He spoke to her, then slipped both hands around her and felt a living whiteness move. Then, frightened, he hoped he had not stained that perfect beauty. He whispered at her. Look, he brought her toys, small gifts that girls delight to wear, to gaze at pet birds and shells and semi-precious stones, white lilies, flowers of a thousand colors, and amber tears wept by Heliades. He dressed her like a queen, rings on her fingers or diamonds and gold or glancing rubies, a shining collar at her throat, pearls at her ears, and golden chains encircling her small breast. All these were beautiful enough, yet greater beauty shone from her nakedness in bed. He called her his bride, his wife, the fair white creature sleeping on cloth of purple, as if she shared his dreams, her head at rest upon a feathered pillow. Meanwhile, the feast of Venus had arrived and all of Cyprus joined in the celebration. Golden-horned cattle lay at smoke-wreathed altars, blood pouring from white throats in sacrifice in honor of a blessed holiday. Pygmalion, after paying his devotions, began a prayer. Then shyness overcame him. He whispered, May the very gods in heaven give me a wife. He could not say outright, Give me the girl I made. He stammered, then went on. But someone like... He cleared his throat, then said, Give me a lady who is as lovely as my work of art. The prayer was scarcely heard, yet golden Venus, who on that day had come to join the feast, was well aware of what Pygmalion longed for. Three times his altar burned in whitest fire. Three times its flames leaped floating into air. Six friendly omens of her good intentions. Then he ran home to see, to touch again the ivory image that his hands contrived, and kissed the sleeping lips, now soft, now warm, then touched her breasts and cupped them in his hands. They were as though ivory had turned to wax, and wax to life, yielding, yet quick with breath. Pygmalion, half-dazed, lost in his raptures, and half in doubt, afraid his senses failed him, touched her again, and felt his hopes come true. The pulse beat, stirring where he moved his hands. Then, as if words could never say enough, he poured a flood of praise to smiling Venus. He kissed the girl until she woke beneath him. Her eyes were shy. She flushed. Yet her first look saw at one glance his face and heaven above it. Venus came down to be their guest at wedding and blessed them both. Less than a year went by. Scarcely the ninth moon filled her slender crescent. A girl was born to them. Paphos, they called her. And from that child, a harbor takes its name. Okay, so uh, among my reading of other books, that was it in its entirety. Um, it goes into the next story. Um, but among my other readings of books relating to sexual purity uh, and abstinence, I came across the story of Pygmalion really through my reading of Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, which for those of you unfamiliar, was a German philosopher who lived from 1844 until about 1900. Now, Nietzsche was initially born from a Lutheran family, uh, eventually rebelling from his childhood faith to that of a sort of staunch opposition. Um, I think it's rather trivial to call Nietzsche an atheist in the contemporary sense of the term, um, but I won't get into that right now. Uh, and he stayed in that opposition throughout the remainder of his life. One can say that it even became more sort of embittered as he got older. Now, I don't exactly remember where I saw Nietzsche discuss Pygmalion. My guess is the birth of tragedy, uh, where he discusses art more uh, specifically. Uh, uh, oh gosh, <coughs> specifically. <laughs> 
I have a really bad stutter sometimes. But either way, if we look in part three of his book, uh, Beyond Good and Evil, he wrote, What is amazing about the religiosity of the ancient Greeks is the enormous abundance it exudes. It is a very noble type of man that confronts nature and life in this way. Later, when the rabble gained the upper hand in Greece, or excuse me, later when the rabble gained the upper hand in Greece, fear became rampant in religion too, and the ground was prepared for Christianity. Now, Nietzsche is speaking here of the Greeks, and our focus, of course, initially started with the Romans, that is, Ovid, who spoke Latin. However, Nietzsche develops a certain view of tragedy throughout his life, which I don't have time to offer here really a nuanced discussion of, uh, you know, nuanced discussions are what scholars like to <laughs> use. Uh, but uh, and I, I won't get into this detailed description as to what he differentiates between Apollonian art and Dionysian art, but I'll talk about it a little bit because I, I think it's kind of relevant to what this episode's about. Now, in The Birth of Tragedy, Nietzsche writes that the first kind of art, Apollonian art, referring to the, um, the Greek god Apollo, uh, is he says it's the transfiguring genius of the Principium Individuationis, through which alone the redemption and illusion is to be truly obtained. Now, what the heck does that mean? Well, let me just read the second definition, and then I can, of course, explain uh, going into that. Now, Dionysian art, by contrast, is when the spell of individuation is broken, and the way lies open to the mothers of being. Uh, Nietzsche got that phrase from uh, Goethe's play, Faust. To the innermost heart of things. Now, what is basically being communicated here is that Nietzsche thinks that there's what he calls a yawning gulf that exists between plastic art, the art of sculptures and of paintings, etc., and the music of Dionysian art. So I think in a superficial way, we can say that Nietzsche is not strictly intending to say that all music is Dionysian. Rather, it's almost a distinction in attempting to elaborate how art, particularly tragedy, contains expressions of resignation in the human individual, and how the looking... Uh, at the birth or origin of tragedy, which Nietzsche identifies two kinds, named after the two artistic deities, Apollo and Dionysus, and how this can lead to a rebirth. So in the original version of that book, um, which, remember, was entitled in full, The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music, Nietzsche finished with this paragraph in the initial edition of that work. Here we knock deeply moved at the gates of present and future. Will this turning this referring to resignation, will this turning lead to ever new configurations of genius and especially of the Socrates who practices music? Now, this phrase, Socrates who practices music, interestingly, he intended it as an idealized sort of self-portrait of himself because Nietzsche played the piano. So his interest in music um, and art is not irrelevant here. So he furthermore says that, or he asks, will the net of art, even if it is called religion or science that is spread over existence, be woven even more tightly and delicately? Or is it destined to be torn to shreds in the restless, barbarous, chaotic world that now calls itself the present? So essentially this is the sort of groundwork by looking at the tragedy, the attitude of resignation within the Greeks or pre-Christian pagans specifically, that allowed for Nietzsche to find the seeds required to break the human spirit free from chains of art, religion, and science that hindered the will to power. 
that is, a human individual's striving for knowledge, configurations, rebirths, and progressions which develop them towards uh, an idealized sort of humanity, what he later came to call the Ubermensch, or the Superman. Now, why do I bring up Friedrich Nietzsche and all this detailed mess about art, humanity, and the Greeks? Well, I bring up Nietzsche specifically because I, I think he showcases a unique modern characteristic of tragic resignation, which is something that we just experienced a little while ago with our story of Pygmalion. And I think this is something further indicative of individuals who are chaste or are sexually pure and yet are what the church fathers refer to as the natural man. So that is to say, our focus for this episode is going to be on this concept of resignation and as it applies to the natural man, you know, in the context of sex. And I'll get into these details here in a moment. So we'll kind of iron everything out because we have a lot of ideas being spread out right now. Now, Gregory of Nyssa, a fourth century uh, father of the church in his little philosophical treatise on the doctrine of man, discussed three kinds of men, the carnal, the natural, and the spiritual. Now, the carnal man is the one who is busied with the belly and the pleasures connected with it, he writes. We remember actually Paul's statement to the Philippians in chapter three, where he says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, the carnal man has no regard for the sustenance of the soul because they are so concerned with the sustenance of the body. First, by hunger, since this sustains the individual, and second, by sex, since this sustains the race. The natural man, however, higher than the carnal man, holds a middle position regarding virtue and vice, rising above the one, but not without pure participation in the other, says Gregory. Now, regarding the natural man, Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, although this isn't an exhaustive examination of the varieties of human personality, since, as Kierkegaard beautifully put it, the variety of spiritual states are as numerous as the flowers of the field. However, these three categories still encapsulate the kinds of existences or silhouettes that human beings can often take on. Stated another way, these are the kinds of silhouettes that we cast upon the wall whenever we perform the various gestures that make up carnality as opposed to natural mindedness, natural mindedness as opposed to a godly life, and so on. However, the kind of shadow cast by the spiritual man is a shadow of an altogether character. The shadow that the spiritual man casts is only discernible through the light of truth provided by the Holy Spirit. This shadow is of such a contrast from other shadows of the world because it contains such power. We remember all of the lame and sick who sought the mere casting of Peter's shadow in order that they might be healed, according to the fifth chapter of Acts. Now, Insofar as today's topic concerns sexual purity, I'm going to be, or I should say, I'm not going to be addressing specifically the carnal man because they are deaf, or more accurately, impatient towards the regulation or chastising of one's passions by the use of their reason. As Thomas Aquinas observes in the fourth part of his Summa Theologiae, chastity derives its name from the activity that takes place when reason tra- uh, chastises concupiscent desires in the human individual. And I'll explain a little bit more about concupiscent desires uh, further in the episode. 
But the carnal man is not an individual concerned with, with that feature which distinguishes man from the beast. That is his reason. In fact, the carnal man is something more bestial, as I've already said. They reside entirely in the service of their passions, thereby suspending their reason, and hence are only aroused through a constant repetition of stimulation and pleasure sought and obtained via these sense perceptions. Now, the natural man, on the other hand, and the spiritual man, since they both possess reason, order their bodies towards goals or ends which are aimed at goods that are higher than the body. However, the natural man's will of the good is not by an understanding of a spiritual discernment, but is simply a recognition by the human heart that it participates in the rational order of the natural law to know the difference between right and wrong, just in the same way as the human mind knows the difference between true and false, or is and is not. The spiritual man, on the other hand, has an altogether different understanding of freedom and of truth. To borrow Paul's phrase, we could say that the spiritual man has a spiritual discernment about these things. In other words, the spiritual man understands that the good and the true are unified in God's being, or God's nature, the mystery of which is presented to us and is perfecting us in this life to become like him, through the power and wisdom of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, two features of this statement is where we find the specific difference between the spiritual man and the natural man. First, Jesus Christ, and second, Christ crucified. Now, it should be emphasized that the natural man does not possess the ability to really combine the two. They might be able to combine them intellectually, but they cannot do so spiritually. If we remember the kenosis of Christ, that Greek word used to signify the act of God's self-emptying or self-humiliation, to take on the form of God and the form of a servant, as Philippians uh, 2 states, there is an inverse sort of behavior that is indicative of God's action towards humanity. In other words, Christianity has this sort of inherent feature of a paradox where power manifests itself in powerlessness, where omnipotence resides in the helplessness of an infant, where the last shall be first and the first shall be last, where divine innocence and justice is tortured and nailed to a cross like a criminal. In this territory of the natural man, of purely human understanding, there is ignorance and foolishness abounding. Just as Shakespeare said about death, these sorts of truths are the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Indeed, spiritually speaking, Christianity is a venture into that undiscovered country, which is really like a kind of death. Although we are really too clever to know that no traveler returns. However, the adventure, Christianity that is, still tells us that the guide himself has come back from that undiscovered country and shows us the way forward, this way, namely, being himself. Now, from here I'd like to quote this passage from Soren Kierkegaard's Papers and Journals. He wrote it in 1834, and then I want to discuss it to kind of get our conversation going from here. He writes, Christ's whole... I'm really sorry for the music in the background. I just I do it for effect, and then <laughs> sometimes the uh, operatic chorus is coming. It kind of becomes a lot, so sorry about that. But then again, I'm not because it's kind of nice. Kierkegaard writes, Christ's whole life in all its aspects must supply the norm for the life of the following Christian and thus for the life of the whole church. Now, from here, Kierkegaard provides some clarifications about how Christ's activity and existence relates to the church. Well, 
he provides uh, a quick snippet comment about Catholics. But then he writes, in spite of all this, I believe that this activity was the principal thing because that life which he enjoins cannot blossom forth before generation or regeneration. Now, from here, Kierkegaard cites three passages of Scripture, which I'll only read two of them to you. Uh, the third, in case you're curious, is Romans 3.25. But first, from 1 Corinthians 5, 5.7, uh, I believe, uh, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The second citation is from Ephesians 5.2, which reads, And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, to start this section, let's begin with two observations, one negative and one positive. The negative observation is that we can dispose of the sort of sophist ethic of what would Jesus do. You see, some Christians think that in asking what would Jesus do about a certain situation, that they're asking an ethically sophisticated question, when they're really asking an ethically sophistic question. So, sophisticated actually comes from a Latin verb that means to become impure or corrupted, typically by sophistry. In the 1700s, the verb later developed to mean to deprive of simplicity. And hence, we take individuals as sophisticated when they are concerned with good taste and they have an affinity for finer things in life. When a situation emerges by which they cannot resort to simplicity or make a simple decision, they instead resort to complexity or to sophistry. Now, typically this means that they resort to the concoctions of various fantasies, of images, and of phantoms about themselves and their lives. They are like the gods and characters of Ovid's Metamorphoses, as we've been reading earlier, constantly being reborn or transformed through cyclic processes of birth and death. The Christian individual, or this Christian individual, I should say, quote, quote, who incessantly finds themselves in situations where their finer tastes are brought into question, and hence they resort to the imagination, to historical fantasy, and they ask themselves, what would Jesus do? From this question, they swim around for a little while in the impure waters of seduction, of yearnful longing and desire, and are pushed by the wandering currents of their passions until a mood has washed ashore and has presented them with a shiny and golden new idea, just as Pharaoh's daughter named the River Nile's wandering child Moses because she drew him out of the water, the Bible tells us. So too then do these individuals by their own selfishness claim this idea as their own. Let me read a passage from Soren Kierkegaard's Either Or, Part 1, which he wrote in 1843, where he depicts a scene through the pseudonymous author, Victor Eremita, or Victor the Hermit, uh, otherwise translated, and it shows my point a little bit further. Through the pseudonymous author, to kind of set the scene, uh, Kierkegaard describes how the author, Victor, came to possess the stack of papers that comprise the present work, because Either Or is uh, really just a series of essays uh, from two authors, one named A, the other named B. So he describes his finding these papers as follows. My daily path took me by this shop, and I never failed a single day to pause and feast my eyes upon a writing desk. I gradually made up a history about it. It became a daily necessity for me to see it. 
And so I did not hesitate to go out of my way for the sake of seeing it, when an unaccustomed route made this necessary. And the more I looked at it, the more I wanted to own it. I realized very well that it was a peculiar desire, since I have no use for such a piece of furniture, and it would be an extravagance for me to buy it. But desire is a very sophisticated passion. I made an excuse for going into the shop, asked about other things, and as I was leaving, I casually made the shopkeeper a very low offer for the secretary. I thought possibly he might accept it, then chance would have played into my hands. It was certainly not for the sake of the money I behaved thus, but to salve my conscience. The plan miscarried. The dealer was uncommonly firm. I continued to pass the place daily and look at the secretary with loving eyes. You must make up your mind, I thought, for suppose it is sold, then it will be too late. Even if you were lucky enough to get hold of it again, you would never have the same feeling about it. My heart beat violently. Then I went into the shop, I bought it, and paid for it. This must be the last time, thought I, that you are so extravagant. It is really lucky that you bought it, for now every time you look at it, you will reflect on how extravagant you were. A new period of your life must begin with the acquisition of the secretary. Alas, desire is very eloquent, and good resolutions are always at hand. In other words, you can see how this individual sort of dresses themselves up within certain situations. They organize their personality around the possession of things or as being present in certain situations according to a certain mood. Now, I would argue that you can actually see all kinds of examples like this in men and women. But if you're a male listening or have had a girlfriend, wife or whatever, and have noticed in shopping with them that they tend to be very good at painting pictures about their possible purchases... Uh, I remember shopping with a girlfriend of mine some years ago who needed a carpet uh, for her apartment. Whenever we looked at various options, she would often ask me the questions, wouldn't this darker gray look better in this room as opposed to this room? Do you like this pattern? Do you like this texture? Well, what if I moved around the furniture in this room to accommodate for space? And then, of course, all sorts of questions and images which rearrange your understanding of the actual apartment. So, Likewise, this procedure similarly takes place in individuals when they are making decisions about themselves. Christians, all too unfortunately, make this similar error by not allowing their essential personalities to be constructed by and before God. Hence, they construct themselves in scenarios or existence possibilities, since we like to talk philosophy around here, wherein they are not being spiritually constructed, or as Kierkegaard rightly put it, they are constructing themselves poetically, whereas they are not being poetically constructed by God. Now, this is the negative point. Moving to the positive point, it's to say that Christ's life constitutes an ideal standard of conduct for the human race, but not per se the human individual. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is only making the observation that obligations, duties, and responsibilities differ between individuals and the entirety of the human race. Christ was celibate his entire life, and yet there are millions upon millions of Christians who have families. They get married and have children, while Christ did not. Is there an apparent contradiction here? Well, no, there isn't. And the reason for this pertains to the seriousness of the first negative point. As Kierkegaard, through the, uh, the Sudan... Um, ugh, through the pseudonym Anticlimacus. So Kierkegaard often wrote not by his own pen name. Um, he often wrote by the uh, name of various pseudonyms or you know false names. This one, Anticlimacus, wrote Training in Christianity, where he wrote, 
You have no right to apply to yourself one word of Christ, not one single word. You have not the least part in him, no society with him in the remotest way, unless you have become so contemporary with him in his humiliation that, exactly like his immediate contemporaries, you must take heed of his warning. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. You have no right to appropriate Christ's words and mendaciously eliminate him. You have no right to appropriate Christ's words and then transform him fantastically into something other than he is by means of the vain character of history, which while it chatters about him really has no notion what it is chattering about. It is Jesus Christ in his humiliation who speaks. It is historically true that he uttered these words. And it's really amazing, actually, if you read through the works of Kierkegaard, primarily towards that of the later Christian discourses, where he speaks in repetitious ways like that, where he says, you have no right to. He does that for a purpose, and it's really amazing um, if you kind of go and see that for yourself. So, from here we have laid ample grounds um, for considering our subject matter further. Purity, therefore, is that which, through self-humiliation, recognizes the spiritual sanctity of the human person specifically of the source and power that has deemed it at all sanctified. Sexual purity, then, pertains to this reverence of spiritual sanctity, but is ultimately due to the basis of a mystery. This is why the church has always held the sacrament of marriage to be a mystery. Sacrament became a word through Christian use that was taken from the Greek word mysterion, which means mystery. Therefore, Christians argue, or rather Christians were made known, they were revealed, that marriage, and especially the act that consummates it, sex, is a mystery. Sexual purity, therefore, pertains to a reverence that is paid to the mystery of sex. Now, I'll say that again because it's important. Spiritual, or excuse me, sexual purity, or chastity, is the reverence that is paid to the mystery of sex. Now, I didn't come up with that definition myself since I actually stole it from Fulton Sheen, a prominent Roman Catholic intellectual and outstanding communicator. Uh, at the time of my recording this, his Life is Worth Living uh, broadcasts are actually available on iTunes, and I'd recommend checking that out. Now, Pygmalion had recognized the vanity of the public dispelling of the secrets of the mystery of sex. All natural men who abide by the order of right reason will see this similar dispelling. Hence, what did Pygmalion do? In his disgust and contempt for the women of Cyprus, he does what a lot of us men do, who recede or retreat from the company of women, usually not by a contempt of women, but by a contempt of ourselves. He resorts to fantasy. As one endowed with the talents of a sculptor, Pygmalion was an artist who set about the construction of what he thought a woman should be. And I'm reminded here again, though I can't really help it, of the implicit reference pornography has to all of this. The element of focus here regarding the natural man is resignation. The individual sees the absurdity, the tragedy of existence before them, and so they resign themselves. Instead of being like David, admitting that I am a worm and not a man, as he says in Psalm 22, I believe. The natural man, the artist in this case, resigns himself. And instead of being poetically constructed by God, he constructs himself poetically in the yearnful desire to give me a lady who is as lovely as my work of art, as Pygmalion said. Now, Christians and non-Christians alike can have this similar fault of being 
a constructive, imaginative poet. I think it is an elemental feature of human existence to be this way. That is, to be concerned with the poetic. But notice I didn't say poetry. So this isn't a negative point, but one which suggests that our poetic capacities need to be directed towards the guidance and direction of God himself. Transformations do not take place within myself or by myself, but rebirth is a work of God's hand alone. Hence, Pygmalion stands as a warning of idols through this regenerative process, whether it be idols of marble or idols of fantasy. And it's an interesting conversation to have with respect to the point of idolatry being related to anxiety, how the worship of false gods, false images, leads us to the corruptions which occur in both mind and body. The corruption of lust, says Thomas Aquinas, is that which debauches the mind first, and therefore contains a serious offense to the higher powers of man, namely his reason and will. In Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae, which is a work I've been referencing quite a bit throughout this podcast, uh, he says in the second part of the second part, and well, I guess, so a side comment, there's four parts in total to the Summa. This means, of course, the Summa Theologiae in Latin, uh, the summary of theology. Now, the second part has two parts, hence why I said second part of the second part, and then there's a supplement volume to the Summa, which comes after the fourth part, because Aquinas died before he could complete the Summa, and hence the supplement is just the acquisition of his teachings on the sacraments, on marriage, and other topics um, that his students uh, organized posterior to his death. So I think in total there's, you know, there's what, there's about five or six volumes in total to the, uh, to the Summa. So the second part of the second part <laughs> is what I'm referring to. Question 153, fifth article on lust. He says, quote, when the lower powers are strongly moved towards their objects, the result is that the higher powers are hindered and disordered in their acts. Now, the effect of the vice of lust is that the lower appetite, namely the concupiscible, is most vehemently intent on its object, the object of pleasure, on account of the vehemence of the pleasure. Consequently, the higher powers, namely the reason and the will, are most grievously disordered by lust. Now, from here, uh, Aquinas provides a short argument to show that reason has four acts in the matters of action. First, there is a basic apprehension of some good, of some goal. Second, there is a deliberation or counseling about what is to be done for the sake of this good. Third, there is a judgment about the things to be done. Fourth, there is an act by reason to make commands about the thing to be done. Now, Aquinas says that lust is a capital vice, which means that its being committed precedes with a committal of many other sins, all of which are said to have arised from that vice as a principal vice. So in other words, lust is a vice which hinders all four acts of reason to assist the individuals or to assist the individual towards an obtainment of the good, which remember Aquinas as a theologian thought was ultimately to be found in God. However, just because everyone has their end or finality in God does not mean that every person obtains that end by the same means. However, Lust is a capital vice which entirely hinders the means towards an attainment of man's ultimate good or true happiness. However, this isn't to say that concupiscence is entirely foreign or alien to a person's obtaining the good. 
So now before I move forward, I think it's probably now fitting to speak a moment about the meaning of concupiscence, since it's a forgotten gem of medieval scholastic theology and Latin terminology in general that needs entryway back into our conversations about sex. Concupiscence. Keep, remember that word. Sing it to yourself in sleep, but like don't do it all the time. <laughs> concupiscence, concupiscence, concupiscence. Thomas Aquinas, in the first part of the second part, so remember how I talked about the dual parts? Now we're going to the first part. Question 30. He writes the following. He explains things better than I do. That's why, that's why I'm resorting to him so much. He writes, As the philosopher says, that's Aristotle, concupiscence is a craving for that which is pleasant. Now, pleasure is twofold. One is in the intelligible good, which is the good of reason. The other is in good perceptible to the senses. Now, the former pleasure, the intelligible good, seems to belong to the soul alone, whereas the latter, good perceptible to the, senses, uh, to the senses, belongs to both soul and body, because the sense is a power seated in a bodily organ, wherefore sensible good is the good of the whole composite. Now, concupiscence seems to be the craving for this latter pleasure, since it belongs to the united soul and body as is implied by the Latin word concupiscentia. Therefore, properly speaking, concupiscence is in the sensitive appetite and in the concupiscible faculty, which takes its name from it. Now, to give you a simple definition, just from the Catholic Encyclopedia to explain all of this, in its widest application, it says, concupiscence is any yearning of the soul for good. Now, in its strict and specific acceptation, a desire of the lower appetite contrary to reason. Okay, that's what concupiscence is. A desire of the lower appetite contrary to reason. Now, we can see how the resignation, the, the resigning of himself, of the natural man, is where he is only able to reside in the concupiscible passions of his soul and his body. The carnal man has such an emphasis on pleasures of the body that he has no awareness of the connection or relationship with his soul and body whatsoever. This individual is by no surprise plagued by all kinds of ills and anxieties of the mind, since they principally keep forgetting what our Lord told them not to do when seeking the kingdom of God. Namely, don't be anxious. <laughs> like, yeah, he told them, don't be anxious. I think I'd use a double negative, but you get what I'm trying to say. They're, they're, not, they're forgetting that one basic step in seeking the kingdom of God. Don't be anxious. So what do they do? They worry about the clothes on their back and they worry about the food they will eat. Thinking that they actually have an eye for beauty, they still can't so much as see the beauty contained within the lilies of a field, where even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Well, what about the worries of the natural man? Well, again, as we have said, the mark of the natural man is his decisive, or really indecisive, role of resignation. Elevating beyond the sensuous appetites of the carnal women of Cyprus, Pygmalion resigned himself to thought towards reflection, imagination, and yearning. This story of pagan love presents us with an artist who sings his beloved into being. That is, an artist whose altar burns with leaping flames and thus feels the heat of stone lips turned warm. His creation, his thought, had come alive. And yet, what does Christianity teach? This story of spiritual love now contains an artist who formed his beloved not from the marble or limestone of Greece, but from the very dust of the earth. 
that this God did breathe life into the nostrils of man and made him upright. But the beloved rebelled against the lover. And instead of being brought to life by a kiss, as Pygmalion had done with his beloved, it was the creation who would instead betray and put the artist to death by a kiss. As Kierkegaard so beautifully wrote in his journals, it is so heartbreaking that Christ, who is the teacher of love, is betrayed with a kiss. It is the spiritual man who understands that Christ's own generation, his own contemporaries, hated, persecuted, and crucified him. And yet it is that very generation which benefits from Christ's death. As Kierkegaard writes in 1847, in this way, Christ never did, as it were, get justice from men. But this is not what he wanted at all. He wanted to save them. Usually, the innocent victim will say, my death will become your punishment. But Christ's death became a salvation for them. It was not Christ who said, my blood be upon you. It was the people. So then how does the spiritual man, or what does the spiritual man, have to do with purity, more alone sexual purity? Well, it is love which principally drives him. However, it is a love which has been generated or regenerated within the man due to the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the goal of love for the spiritual individual is not to resort to an understanding of human individuals as merely bodies. The spiritual individual is motivated primarily by the belief that all are made in the image of God and hence are composite of body and soul. When these two factors are united in man, as what Kierkegaard called a synthesis, this is what is meant when man is said to be spirit, a synthesis of body and soul, infinite and finite, temporal and eternal. Therefore, if man is so composed in this sort of way, then true love does not wish to bring the beloved up to themselves, but rather the lover wishes to go down in humiliation to the beloved. Humanly speaking, this is always a temptation because we often use our charm or wit or intellect to seduce others and thereby bring them up to the world of ourselves. And we are, after all, as Aristotle said, little worlds. And in doing this, we are attempting we are attempting to enthrall the beloved by having them follow closer and closer to our finer fragrance of charm. However, this sort of procedure of utilizing human gifts of charm, of seduction, and intellect are often prostituted for the sake of pride. For men, this prostitution has a unique characteristic. As the German philosopher Schopenhauer wrote, a man who tries to live on the generosity of the muses, I mean on his poetic gifts, seems to me somewhat to resemble a girl who lives on her charms, both profane for base profit, what ought to be the free gift of their inmost being. Both are liable to become exhausted and usually come to a shameful end. So do not degrade your muse to a whore. Now for women, this prostitution is something of the same, but stands as a warning for the men. Now if we remember the German philosopher Goethe's poem uh, of the sirens, those seductive mythical creatures of the deep who, according to Greek legend, uh, lured men to their deaths by their sweet song. Goethe writes towards the end of the poem, The water rushed. The water swelled. It clasped his feet. It was a thrill went through his yearning heart, as when two lovers kiss. She spake to him. She sang to him. Resistless was her strain. 
half drew him in, half lured him in. He never was seen again. Now, from here, I'll go ahead and conclude today's podcast, um, even though there's really so much to talk about. But of course, I'll do future episodes, getting a little bit more details about the nature of sexual purity, of chastity, and probably getting into some more practical virtues therein. So today, I just wanted to set the stage for the conversation regarding this notion of resignation, which I think is something very important when thinking about paganism or really about the existence of the natural man itself. Because we see that there are certain individuals who rise above carnality and rise above to this realm of self-consciousness, which I think is really quite superficial. And really, it reflects this notion of resignation, that is to say, where the individual resigns themselves to poetic constructions, to conceiving of themselves fantastically, and putting themselves within historical phantoms, if you will. They're always dressing themselves in possibility. I've talked about this in other episodes um, when I've talked about the psychology of Soren Kierkegaard, and this is kind of a continuation of that sort of conversation or project, if you will. Um, So yeah, um, thank you, as I always say, for listening to these lectures, videos, episodes, and etc. God bless you for attaining the time and the attention to make it to the very end, if you did. Um, And be sure to check out everything else I have available on WordPress, where my writing is available, as well as on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and probably some other places I'm not mentioning. But don't forget to check out my other podcasts, because there's two of these bad boys. So you're listening to Unadulterated Theology, and then I also have Hellenistic Christendom, which to announce it here kind of as a secret, I'm thinking about changing the name sometime here soon. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion, a lot of questions that go into that sort of name, which... At first, I was really attracted to because it's the sort of name that I want you to ask questions about and to look into the history of Christianity. But I think to those that actually have an understanding of the subject matter, it can be kind of a stumbling block. So that's a possibility I'm considering. Look to that possible change in the future. I'll comment on it probably later. But anyway, thank you so much. God bless you. Um, If you have enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe. Give it a rating that you like. Um, And yeah, God bless you. Have a good day or night. Yeah.